We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I'm Laura Tremaine, and I have 10 things to tell you. And you have 10 things to tell. This show is about connection with each other and with ourselves. And the hope is that the things we talk about here will be fuel for better conversations and a personal awareness. This is an interactive podcast. Each episode has a prompt and a topic that I want you to take to your journal, text to your best friend, or answer on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. This is a show about digging deeper and sharing our stuff. I'll go first. Welcome to this episode of the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. The conversation today is something that has been in the works for years now, and I was so glad to finally record it with a few of my hometown friends last week. If you have been around my blog or podcast very long at all, you know that I grew up in small town, Oklahoma. Technically, for most of my childhood, I lived in a small, small town called Medill, population 4,000. But for lengthy reasons that don't have anything to do with what we're talking about today, I went to school and eventually lived in a town called Ardmore, which honestly, by Oklahoma standards, it's not really that small. The population there is about 25,000. But comparative to cities and suburbs, it's still a really small community. Ardmore is located on Interstate 35. It's about halfway between Oklahoma City and Dallas. So I grew up having to drive nearly two hours to get to an airport, but we could all get out to the lake in just 15 minutes. I've lived in Los Angeles for almost 19 years now, but Growing up in Oklahoma, it's just a huge, huge part of my identity, and it is something that I talk and write about a lot. And a few years ago, in 2017, I flew back to Oklahoma for my 20th high school reunion. Yes, you can do the math. I am 40 years old. I thought that the reunion was going to be fun, but it really ended up being amazing, mainly because I got reacquainted with some of the women that I'd grown up with, but basically hadn't really kept up with, besides maybe being Facebook friends, in decades. And we just had the best time together, laughing and reminiscing. It meant so, so much. Well, about six months after that high school reunion is when I started to create the Racial Bias series with my friend Yasmin on my former podcast called Smartest Person in the Room. Now, if you don't already know about it, the Bias series on Smartest Person in the Room, it's an eight-episode conversation between friends. 
I am a white woman, my friend Yasmin is a black woman, and we met in our book club. She taught me so much about the history behind the racial divide that we were seeing in America. This was after the deaths of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown, and then the riots in Ferguson, and I was trying to better understand what was happening. Yasmin suggested that we make some of our private conversations public on my podcast at the time, and so we did. It was a really transformative time for me personally. I learned a lot. I asked a lot of awkward questions. And as the protests are happening around the country now, I can see that you guys are still sharing that series, and I really hope that it is helpful to people who are listening a few years later. I will link to that bias series from 2018 in the show notes. Now, because I started making that series just a few months after our high school reunion, at the time, I reached out to some of my hometown friends, most of them I'd known since I was like 11 or 12 years old. And I asked if we could get together in person to record a conversation about what their experience was like growing up in our hometown. By then, I was really learning that to understand people's experience, you have to ask them about it. Books are great. Movies are great. I love hearing other people's stories in general, but to connect on a relational level, to really understand someone or something Nothing beats actually talking about it with them. And because some of these women were black, I really wanted to understand what their perspective was on our hometown, the education, sports, church, on lots of things. I was trying back then to make that conversation happen in person, and we never could find a time that worked while we were all in town. And so it just didn't end up happening, and it didn't make it into the original bias series. But that same group of us has been chatting over Messenger during the coronavirus lockdown in the last few months. And so when these current protests started happening around the country in reaction to the murder of George Floyd, I asked the ladies if we could have that conversation and just do it over Zoom instead. And three of them were able to join me last week. LaToya Brown, Monica Pickens, and Danielle Williams were so gracious to talk with me about growing up in small-town Oklahoma, when and where they felt discrimination was present, what was taught in their homes, in churches, how we think about some of these issues now versus when we were children, what we're all teaching our kids, when it's appropriate to even have conversations about race and bias. I am so grateful that they were willing to share themselves here with me. This show, this podcast is all about connection through conversation, and this particular conversation is vulnerable and imperfect because we are all humans. You will hear more than one of us have little revelations as we talk through some of this stuff, and memories come back, and opinions get really honest. At the beginning of the episode, I left in a lot of our hometown-specific stuff. We talk about our different elementary schools and some of the neighborhoods in town. These are the kind of details that I would usually cut because they don't make much sense to the general audience. But I left it in because I think you can hear us sort of working through some stuff together as we sort out our perspectives a little bit in the beginning. 
And that's how real conversation is, you know? And so I left it in so that you can get a feel for the big picture. Two quick caveats. This call was recorded over Zoom with all four of us in different places, so the audio isn't amazing. It kind of drops out a few times. There's sometimes some background noise. I hope that you'll bear with me on the sound quality front. And another treat, you will hear my Oklahoma accent back in full force, even more than usual, when I am talking to other Oklahomans. No apologies. I just don't want you to be surprised. (laughs) I had no idea what these women were going to say about our hometown when I pressed record. The entire conversation was a surprise, but I am so glad that we had it. I encourage you to reach out to people in your life, people that you are already in relationship with, and genuinely ask them about their life, about their childhood and their perspective. Conversation is the key to connection. And so I present to you this one. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for being here with me and having this interesting, I hope, conversation on the show. I've been wanting to do this for a couple years, so I super appreciate you taking the time to talk to me this week. I want you guys first to introduce yourself Let's just start with LaToya. Tell us just a little bit about yourself, kind of like who you are now, because we're going to do a whole throwback to our childhood and our hometown, (laughs) but just talk to us a little bit about who you are these days, Miss LaToya. Okay. So hello, everyone. I'm LaToya Brown. I am, of course, originally from Oklahoma, um, but since then I have transitioned to Texas where I currently live. Um, I have four beautiful children and, you know, I'm down here loving the Texas life. I would call myself an aspiring actress. So, you know, I've had some plays under my belt. I did Um, not know that. Yes. So some of the ladies back in March came down to support the play that I was in. It was very awesome, according to them. And I have one coming up in November. So I'll get with you later on that, Laura. Yes, please. Um, Yeah. So I'm just enjoying the Texas life and and trying to uh, stay on the stage. (laughs) Oh my God. I love that so much. Okay, Monica, tell us a little bit about you and and who you are these days. Well, I'm Monica Pickens, and I am a proud mother of a freshman in college. Uh, We live here in Oklahoma City area. I am prior military. I'm now in oil and gas industry, and so I do regulatory compliance for an energy company here. And other than spending time with friends and family, um, doing fundraisers and anything dealing with my son, that's pretty much what I do. So I look forward to all my friends and family all the time. Okay. And now we had a new friend join us, Danielle. Hey, I can talk. I'm still at work. Do you just want to introduce yourself for the listeners and tell us a little bit about who you are these days? I'm Danielle Williams. I'm 41. I have one child. His name is Merrick. And I work at a doctor's office right now and I really like it. Yeah, I live here in Ardmore, Oklahoma still. That's pretty much all I got going on. (laughs) Okay, I love it. Okay, so I'm so happy to have you three ladies here with me because, you know, we got reacquainted at our 20-year high school reunion, which was in 2017. And Ever since then, I've wanted to sit down and talk to you because we have a shared experience in that we grew up in the same town. But the more I learn and the more I understand, I realize that, in fact, we probably had very, very different experiences growing up in Ardmore. 
Oklahoma, which is a really small town in the southern part of Oklahoma. And, you know, I guess I just want to be able to ask you some questions about it because when I was growing up, I was taught, you know, the etiquette was, it was impolite to say anything about race, to say anything about color, to ever acknowledge that there was a difference or not a difference, or like basically we just tried to not acknowledge it at all. And I understand that I think that that mostly came from a well-meaning place of white people trying to pretend that they were not noticing or something. But now I understand that that is very unfair to you to you know, kind of whitewash it out to sort of take this part of your life and your experience out of the conversation. So I guess I want to ask about some of these things. Like, let's just start in elementary school. Let's just start in childhood. (laughs) I went to Lincoln, which was all white. I cannot think if I had a black classmate. Where did you guys go to elementary school? I was at Franklin. So I went, I started Franklin and I finished at Franklin Elementary. I went to Will Rogers. I went to Franklin for two years till my second grade year. And then I went to Real Rogers where me and LaToya met. But I will say going to Real Rogers, like you said, you went to Lincoln. And yes, Lincoln was known as the majority white community. Real Rogers and Charles Evans, Charles Evans was one of those ones back then to me was majority the white kids. Real Rogers, I felt like it was majority white as well, but you had our speckles of the, the different colors. So we was a little bit more versatile at Real Rogers, but all in all, what ruled the roost was the majority of the white kids. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So when I met Toya and maybe about three or four other black kids that went to school there, I was excited, but it didn't again. I didn't really care white or black. I was always like everybody. But I did notice the difference at that young age is that if you went to Lincoln, you must be white. If you go to Franklin, that's where all the black kids go, you know? Well, I was going to ask about that because even at that young age, I also knew that Lincoln was all white and that Franklin was all black. And to me, that's a ref- these are public schools we're talking about. So right. this is a reflection of the way the town is split up into neighborhoods. Yeah. And so you guys just said that. I didn't even think about that. I didn't either. I didn't either. I was just like, oh, that's so true. But it's true. <laughs> well, but didn't did you have majority black classmates, Monica? No, I had a lot, but I had also a lot of white students with me because my neighborhood was there was a lot of whites in my neighborhood. I lived on G Street Northeast. So when I went to Franklin, that's the neighborhood I lived in, which was predominantly black. But when we moved to Will Rogers District, that's when, that's why. So I feel like Franklin was a part of that, quote unquote, the hood. <laughs> and I guess I just never even really looked at that like that. But you re- never thought of the neighborhoods as being divided like split up and well, no I knew that but just like not that we had majority of the black kids at Franklin like that I just didn't put that until we just literally said that I mean mm-hmm. I just didn't think about it like that because I felt like it was I guess so mixed 
Right, right. Well, for me growing up, I I knew that just from, you know, just childish behavior, I knew I didn't want to go to Franklin because of the myth of it being just hood or, you know, low income or just, you know, that type of kids, they're bad kids. And so going to Royal Rogers, I really thought I was kind of in a better school. Better school, yeah. Yeah, I felt like I was in a better school. And then I always knew Lincoln was kind of, for me, it was like out of touch. Lincoln was never an option. Right, right. Just because that's where the, you know, if you will, upper echelon, you know, the wealthier kids (laughs) went to. So I never had, you know, I just never knew that was an option. I was actually happy with Will Rogers, though, because it was a lot of diversity. And I felt Mm -hmm. like my childhood of learning and being, you know, multicultural, it was it was okay. It wasn't we were outnumbered, but it wasn't where it was um, so much so that I couldn't relate to anybody, you know. Right. So I feel like Will Rogers was a a happy medium between Franklin and Lincoln. Right. right, And and maybe even Charles Evans. So I am sure that you can agree that literally no one wants to smell bad. But sometimes regular underarm deodorant just isn't cutting it. Or maybe it's not your underarms that need help. With Lumi, you don't have to worry. Lumi is the first of its kind in total body deodorant and is fully safe to use anywhere on your body. It is clinically proven to block odor all day and control it for up to 72 hours. The secret is mandelic acid, where instead of masking odor with a fragrance, it stops the odor before it even starts. I especially love that Lumi deodorant is baking soda and paraben free, as well as pH balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. You can choose from a variety of bright scents like clean tangerine, lavender sage, and toasted coconut. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like a mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get 15% off all Lumi products with our exclusive code. And if you combine the 15% off with the already discounted starter pack, that equals over 40% off the starter pack. Use code U for 15% off your first purchase at lumideodorant.com. That's code U, Y-O-U, at lumi, L-U-M-E, deodorant, D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. If you don't mind me asking, where do you think you got the idea about, like, you knew you didn't want to go to Franklin and you felt like Lincoln was out of reach? Is that something your parents talked about? Did people joke about it in the community? Like, where, I mean, you know, our schools didn't really intermingle. They didn't have sports that played each other yet or whatever. So, like, where did you get that idea? Okay, so so you're familiar with the HFV Wilson Community Center? Uh-huh. Okay, so at the community center, that place was just everything for me growing up um, because, you know, a lot of black children attended there after school and we all hung out no matter what school you went to after school, we would all come there and, you know, and it was free of charge and free, free after school snacks and, 
uh, free activities and all of that good stuff. So naturally we would all hang out, but then when we would have those discussions or, you know, just child talk, Right. Where you go to school? Oh, yeah. Where you go to school? Yeah. Where you go to school? And so when you find out that people that you know go, you know, they go to a different school, and then and then maybe there's there were shared experiences. Oh, we had a fight over here, or they had a fight, or they did this. And I was thinking, I don't want to go to that that school. school. It was just childhood talk. I would say childhood talk too, but you know that when you would go into a different environment there is probably an adult at that time may it said you know that's where all the white kids go or this is you know you don't want to you know what i'm saying i feel like maybe i did maybe hear that at home but it wasn't enforced or anything like it was just it is what it is you know maybe it was said but it wasn't enforced was it said like we're not gonna hang out we're not going to go to the park in that neighborhood because that's a white neighborhood. Like, was it explicitly stated like that's a white neighborhood? We're not going there. Not necessarily in a bad way or maybe in a bad way. I don't know. Like what's the talk around that? Well, I, I, I don't feel like I can only say this about my black environment that I lived in as a, I grew up with a black single mother. And to be honest with you, my mom never talked about, racism or a difference we all were created the same she didn't say oh that quote-unquote white person is you know what i'm saying it wasn't really talked about now mind you i'm not gonna lie that maybe there was maybe every blue moon you might hear uh, the word white trash or something like that but as far as like racism or point that out don't hang around with that girl because she's white or anything like that that was never an issue at home because it was never brought up because we're to me we're the type of culture that don't see nothing different about nobody else to me and my mom instilled that with me where I I mean I have a biracial child I mean obviously I didn't see color you know so I feel like my mom never taught me to see different colors. She's always taught me to love everybody. Monica, what about you in your home life? Like, did your, you know, family members or community culture sort of talk about like racism in Ardmore or like, you know, we are black, they are white. Like what was that? What was sort of taught to you in that way? Okay, Laura, <laughs> you're going to make me pull it out. My little, my little hurt feelings from back in when I was young. <laughs> but I went through a lot of, I guess you could say, um, criticism of my family because I always hung more with white people than I did with black people. It's just me. It's just the way it's been. So for me, my mom them knew, and I was always able to go out to a friend's house that live in Plainview Spend, spend weekends and stuff like that. So I used to get teased, though, from my family for years. And so I had to deal with that for a long time. I mean, we're good now, but it really bothered me because I would get made fun of for, like, having or being with white people all the time. Or- That's what my family members would say. You a sellout, you, you, yes. you know, but at the time back then, I just don't think it was such a big deal. Yeah. I was going to say that because when I blatantly remember my childhood, my best friend, she was white. So I never felt, even though I knew there was a distinction as far as like, you know, the whites over there, the blacks over there, there's a mixture of the school that I was at, but it never was, it wasn't like I couldn't 
play with someone or I couldn't interact with someone because of their skin color at that age, at that time. I knew that we were, you know, we were different, uh, but yeah, I knew that I felt like, you know, that they get that the white people or Lincoln kids got to do more because their parents were, you know, wealthier or had more money because, you know, I grew up in poverty. So I knew from just an economic standpoint that there was a difference as far as color and stuff, but not just, but not that I didn't have access to play and talk and interact and love and all of that with other white kids and stuff. So, and, and it sounds like, it kind of sounds like you're saying it wasn't even necessarily overtly tied to race. Like it was maybe more tied to money. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I would say that. I would say that too. In Ardmore's environment, it may have been different somewhere else, but our personal experience, I would say it was all about the money. Yeah. I'm actually so encouraged to hear this because what it sounds like you're saying is that your families and your community, even if they teased you, I know Monica said they teased you, but they weren't, there was not like, an overly right. negative feeling that you couldn't right. be, couldn't be friends with, a couldn't be friends race. with, yeah. or couldn't be comfortable with, mm-hmm. with white people. Uh-huh. Did you ever get the feeling, cause it sounds like you all had white friends and stuff. Did you ever get the feeling that, that, that generosity was reciprocated, that the white families were also saying, I don't care who you're friends with to their kids. I have one particular friend that, well, two, I will say, I will name, they will, I will not say their name. I have they a story. They were brought up and have had to deal with not being, it's not being okay with being, hanging with black people. For whatever reason, it came through like high school, this particular one, her parents were okay with me, but not okay with other people, other black kids. They didn't mistreat me, but it was never okay for her to just go mingle with other kids. And it definitely was not supposed to be a dating situation. Right, right. I was going to get to dating in a second because I feel like I was pretty ignorant to a lot of this stuff until, I guess, middle school or high school. And so in our small town, there's all these elementary schools and then they come together for sixth grade and then middle school and then, and then goes through high school. And so as all the schools come together, then that's when I guess I started to be more aware (laughs) of when it might have been perceived as problematic in the community was the dating thing. It wasn't other black kids. My parents never said a single racist thing that I can ever imagine in my whole life. But when other kids started dating, when black girls started dating, white guys, or it seemed more often maybe because I just knew them better. The white girl started dating Girl, there was guys. a white girl dating a black man, okay? It was hardly <laughs> ever. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you're right. It was the white girls. And it was usually like the whitest white girls. The whitest, whitest the white whitest girls. The whitest white, you know? <laughs> dating the black boys. And then that's when I feel like Genuinely, when I started to, to, when parents would have a problem with it or there would be some drama around it, that's when I realized like, oh, that's, I mean, that's like blatant racism if you don't want your kids, you know what I mean? And so that's, and I was pretty old. I mean, I would have been a teenager by the time that I really was aware of that happening. So let's just get to that part. Well, maybe back then, I mean, you got to think that was 20-ish years ago. 
maybe I was a little uh, have been judgmental about some of that going on because it's not necessarily was taught in the home, but it was just what it was. You, I'm to date a black man and you to date a white man or woman, whatever. I mean, it was kind of like, it wasn't discussed, but it was almost like you already know that's who you're supposed to date. Uh, you can have all the different color friends that you can have, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? I knew that I probably need to bring a, a black man home. You know what I'm saying? I, do I think that my family would have been different? No, because I have other family members have brought a white girl home and we've always made them feel welcome. The way black communities are is they don't care what color you are. You can come on in. But I did feel that I needed to probably bring a black man home because I, I felt like at that time, that was probably the best bet I needed to do. Now, when it started becoming obviously that you're noticing it a lot more did I become a little relaxed about it? Yes, because I started seeing it more. But when this first started happening, I did feel some kind of way at that time. Now, if it would have happened today in, in time now, I would have been much better understanding it. I'm cool with it now because I, I have no choice but to be cool with it. I brought a white boy home and had a child with him. You know what I'm saying? So I have to stop my words a lot and my feelings a lot because I do have a biracial child. And I have to be diverse with having a biracial child, even though I was already, but I got to be more understanding because he straight up says he's both. He ain't one or the other. He's both. And that's what it is. So, but I do believe that, like, I was just talking to my PA while ago, feel like she had a little opinion too, that society is not going to look at my child as both race. They're going to look at him as a black boy, man, or whatever. So she asked me, why did you not stay with your white boyfriend at the time? You know, we were boyfriend, girlfriend. I said, you know why? Because I feel like he didn't understand where I was coming from as a black woman. And so that kind of deteriorated our relationship because I felt like he didn't understand some of the sh I was going through, you know what I'm saying? And what she agreed on, he was like, I didn't, I didn't know that, you know, I didn't know, you know what I'm saying? So dating, I'm okay with it. It's just that if you're going to get in a relationship with a black man or a white one, a vice versa, whatever, I want you to understand us, you know what I'm saying? Or understand you, where you coming from, where I'm coming from and, and be able to deal with that as let's say majority are white women with the black men. You got to understand where this black man is going to be treated, how your children's going to be treated and what the daily struggles he has to go through going to work, being in his vehicle. I mean, just, you know, being a black man. So that's the only issue that I may have had is, is that if you're going to be with a different race, know where they come from, know their struggles. Latoya, do you have thoughts on when the teenagers started dating different races? So let me back up to, to like middle school-ish going into high school. Personally, I remember when I had my first little crush, you know, on um, a white boy, I didn't feel at that time like it was wrong, like I couldn't like him. It wasn't necessarily because my home life said, no, don't date white. It was because of the other people seemed to frown upon it. You know what I mean? And I wasn't as comfortable. And that's kind of my first experience of developing the thought that it's not okay to interracial date. And then also, 
another guy that I end up having a crush on from the white side of it, I, I don't know if I was necessarily good enough or I, it was a hair thing. I just felt like I didn't have, you know, the white long hair. I used to put towels on my hair growing up because I wanted white hair. And I just thought that that was just the way that, you know, that's how you get the white guy. You have the hair thing. And I know that sounds so crazy, but <laughs> that was, yeah. it was, just, it was just a big thing. Hair is a big culture thing from a black perspective. And so I just felt like if I had that kind of that silky hair look, then the white guy would want me. And for whatever reason, I just had a crush on him, but it never went any further than just a crush because it wasn't openly accepted or if it was accepted, it just felt uncomfortable. So I remember, you know, getting into high school and I ended up dating a, a, a white guy. And I remember we went out to eat at a restaurant and the looks that we got, it was so bad just from the tension that I felt and it, just the looks and stuff, or, or maybe even whispers that I no longer was like, I'm not, this is not for right. me. Mm-hmm. And so even with that, I kind of developed that even into my adulthood, even though love has no color, even though I don't consider myself to be a racist, but because the world does not accept interracial so easily, I don't want, I don't want my children to date outside of their race not because I wouldn't accept it, but because of it's going to be so difficult <laughs> in this day and time, which just like Danielle said, I, I don't have a biracial child, but I'm about to have a biracial grandbaby. Mm-hmm. And so that is definitely has opened up my eyes. Like, you know what, it's going to be a whole lot of protection that's going to have to take place because even though, you know, where the parents may accept it or whatever, but there's somebody along that, that bloodline. Right. Right. That does not, that grew up way back when that does not understand, you know what I mean? So dating to me, is like, it's like, just stick to your race. Just, you know, but you can't help who you love. Right. And so I try to encourage that with my kids and my people that I love. Like, you know, you love who you love. Don't worry about people, but that's easier said than done. Mm. You know, it definitely is. Did you, did any of you ever feel unsafe in Ardmore? On the east side. <laughs> Lord, you might be you might be talking to the wrong girl. <laughs> well, we was I didn't, you know, I didn't yes, personally but. feel unsafe because back in the day, whenever I was growing up, it's so different from today. So back in the day, we were walking the streets. Kids these days, they do not walk. They don't know what that means. But we, I mean, it was a pleasure to get out and walk to the park or walk to the store or, you know, we would be in the streets and there never was like, well, earlier on, it wasn't like a danger thing. But as we got into like middle school and then the violence kind of picked up and on the east side, there were, you know, shootings and different drug activity going on. I wasn't necessarily exposed to it because I had a parents who were very strict. There was curfews. They didn't play them games, you know, right. and stuff like that. But I knew that there were other kids who were more scared than I was because I had protection in the sense of my parents were in my life, both of them. Mm-hmm. So that for me was kind of my protection mode. So I wasn't living in fear, even though I knew that there was some bad things happening on the side that I lived on. Right. Right. Were you guys involved in, church culture growing up yes absolutely girl we didn't have no choice which choir (laughs) uh, vacation bible school Uh, (laughs) i was an usher i sung in the choir so yes i mean church was definitely embedded in in, from growing up to you know yay high to uh, today 
And so right. very, very, very important. And even in that, and I, and I will say this, Laura, Lord knows I love God with all, all my heart, but in my adult personal opinion, Sunday is the most segregated day of the week, meaning that we all go to our own individual churches, people who believe whatever, you know, but we all go to our own individual churches and all of that. And it's so segregated because heaven is not going to be separated like that. But we do con- congregate with majority white or majority black, or there are mixed churches and stuff like that, but it's just so separated. But yeah, church was definitely embedded in me. I knew across the tracks in Ardmore, that was, you know, that's what we called this a white church. We don't, we didn't go to the white church. We went to the black church. White churches, you know, it was just like, we praise and worship different. We kind of believe different. I think we love the same God, but the way that we praise and worship him was just different growing up. I would go you know, the stigma of like coming to a black church, white people will feel like you're going to be there all day, <laughs> you know, or going to the white church, you know, it's going to be boring. They're not going to be, you know, and so I had that stigma growing up as far as church, you know. Well, I experienced both experience too. So I went to a majority white church in the end, which I mean, prior to that, we a majority black church but then when my mom moved to town and we moved schools and whatnot we started going to a predominantly white church which really was just me and my aunt and my cousins and we were the only black people there and I enjoyed it there but I noticed that when I went to my black church honey you, you know totally different I felt like more uplifted at our church than I felt at the white church, you know, but I mean, I experienced both. Do I feel like they're both different? Yes. But, you know, at the end of the day, they, everybody loved God and they, you know, it was, it's a different experience. Always a different experience. Okay. So, but what about in high school? I know we're jumping around a little, but I'm kind of tracking through time, like as we're getting older and then in high school, it was still, you know, a little scandalous if people dated outside of their race, but I ha- I can remember a couple of pretty prominent couples right now. And so I guess maybe we started to get used to it or it just wasn't yes. shocking right. or whatever. Cause there were some long time couples, if you'll remember, like, so it started to sort of feel, you know, not as a thing to think about so much anymore. But what I did notice, and I'm embarrassed to sort of tell this story, but I'm going to say it anyway, um, <laughs> is that, this cliche thing happened in high school in a football world, basketball world, where the athletes, a lot of the best athletes were black. And then a lot of the all period, all of the cheerleaders and drill team and band and like all of that was real, real white. Mm -hmm. And I just started to notice like, you know, if you're a really good athlete in Oklahoma, that's like celebrity status. And then there, you know, I, it was just a, a, after the dating thing, I think that's the next step of being, of feeling like maybe people were being treated differently or looked at differently. The, and then here's the embarrassing story. When I really started like actually talking about it was because on the drill team, which I had been on, which drill team, is like Palm Squad. We got one black person. And that poor girl, I mean, of course you guys know her. We 
would pepper her with questions on the drill team bus, go into some away game for two hours, we would just drive her absolutely nuts, I'm sure, because we would ask her all kinds of questions, a little bit like I'm asking you now, but it was less appropriate, like about her church, about you know, the side of town she lived on about, I mean, and they were well-meaning, by the way. Hair. Is that a perm or is that your real hair? No. Right. <laughs> Lauren, do you remember that we were on drill team together? Yes. So well, after, after that first initial person that got there, what after that, we, we did get about two or three. Cause I remember my cousin Tara, she was on uh, drill so team. Our senior year, I think there ended up being. Mm-hmm. And then Toya, Matra, and somebody else was on there. Shanika Colbert. Uh-huh. So this is what I would chime in and say on that. I, I it's, it's so funny you bring that up, Laura. I remember, like you said, it was it was kind of like you was a black athlete, or whatever. You know, you were kind of like celebrity, like you were very popular and all of that good stuff. But a lot of their girlfriends tended to be white, and so I was like, I'm going out for the drill team. You know. Uh huh. Uh huh. I remember trying out and auditioning for the drill team. And initially I didn't make it. And there were several black girls that tried out just I remember that little era of us was going to make it. And I remember there only being two and you know, two of the names you guys have already mentioned. And my mom and another parent's mom, one of the ladies who made it her mom, and my mom and a couple of other parents went to the administration building and, you know, had a meeting about why is the ratio of black girls that tried out for this drill team? It's only two of them versus all of the ones that tried out. <gasps> and, I yes, did not know this. I can't remember what it's called. Oh, like, I had personal experience with dance. I didn't make it. Toya. I mean, we was, it, I bet we was about six or seven deep coming to try out for the drill team. I right. Remember. What is it called, Laura, whenever you, you don't make, you don't quite make it, but you're kind of like the runner up, like you're the next alternate. person. Alternative. Yes. Alternate. So I was an alternate, right? Alternate, yeah. So when my, when our parents went to the administration building and kind of had a meeting about, you know, was it a racial thing? Why some of these girls, there's only two on there and there were several that tried out. I ended up getting on. I don't know if you knew that, Laura, but that's how I ended up getting on the squad based off of that meeting. Oh, I didn't know that because I never knew about that meeting. Yes. And so I end up getting on drill team, but I remember thinking at that point, not only am I different, but I'm so not privileged. You know what I'm saying? And so that was another defining moment of the black and white thing and the power and the, you know what I mean? Because I felt like white girls didn't have to try as hard because their parents were were dominant in the community who had money and that took precedence over some black girl from across the tracks who's wanting to be on the team. So, well, what did you feel like? First of all, I had no dance experience and I made it. So I'm here to tell you right now that there was something unfair about the situation. (laughs) You were so awesome though. (laughs) But tell me how you felt once you were on, like, did you feel Welcome. Did you feel glad or did you feel like, oh no, this sucks? I never felt good enough. It wasn't that the girls on the on the squad didn't make me feel welcomed and, and loving and, and accepted because I was friends with every single last one of them. So it wasn't it wasn't more so them. 
it was just the way that it was like when we performed and, and I didn't perform a lot. It was just the look that you got from other people. Oh, she thinks she's white or she's trying to be, you know, or like Danielle said at one point, like she's a sellout because black people wasn't getting, we weren't signing up for a drill team. We were playing basketball and running track. Hmm. So want to be on drill team was like, you're a sellout or you think you're all that, or you think you're more than. And I, so once I got that buzz, I no longer wanted to be on drill team. So it wasn't because of the squad. It was more or less, you know, the kids and the, in the back talk and all of that. Mm-hmm. I played sports. So I was in um, several different sports and I can tell you for sure, there was definitely some discrimination and even so much to wear, because back then it was big, the boosters. So if your parents was part of putting money into Ardmore schools, whether you were going to, you were good or not, you had a position on that team. And fair as it was, it just, the way, the way it was. Mm-hmm. And you knew certain parents that mm-hmm. had the money, their kids played. And that was just, that's just the way it was in Ardmore. Yeah, I know. I, I was aware of it without being totally like not the front of my brain, but like some part of me was aware of it. I know. But it wasn't necessarily that I think that our class, our culture, our upbringing more so that like instilled that it was like the adults. I mean, even though the kids talking about it, but of course they're talking about what they hear at home. But I, I felt like I didn't really, I can't say that I solely experienced the racism thing like that, just because I had, like we all said, we have tons of white friends and even all throughout high school, we knew the differences, but it didn't necessarily affect how we interacted with each other. It was just kind of like a common ground. And I'll tell you this. I was looking at our reunion picture before we got on. Mm-hmm. And even though we all like genuinely, I feel, love each other and respect each other, but there, we're just being conditioned to be the way that we are. Because if I looked at that picture and you will see all the black girls on one side of the picture and all the white girls on the other side. Now, there's a few that's kind of sprinkled here and there, but predominantly the picture is like that. And when I looked at several of the pictures, that's just what we do. Like when we get ready to take a picture, it's not that there's racism, right? We just kind of gravitate, you know, all of us sisters and then all of the other, you know, the white girls. It's just the, the way that I just think that we're just conditioned over time. Right. Like if I was going to walk in a crowd of a whole bunch of people, but I seen the majority of the black people over there, I, I think I'm probably going to go on that side quicker than I would go to the all white side just because or I might go in the middle. Like, <laughs> But I see what you're saying. Yeah, I agree with that. So wait then, tell me honestly, as we're having a talk about race, Everything you guys are saying about our hometown, even as we're acknowledging some obvious discrimination, mm-hmm. you guys are sort of saying it like, I don't know, I guess what I'm trying to ask, how do, do you feel like it's different now in 2020? Do you feel like racism is more overt? Do you feel like the protests right now or like a lot, a lot of talk in the nation about bias and all of that stuff is it are do you do you feel like it's uh warranted i'm I, I guess i'm not getting a full vibe on you guys on how you feel about talking about race it needs to be discussed and understood and for someone like you there needs to be more people like you that are trying to understand things to make the world a little bit, bit better i think as long as there are people that are closed in and they don't see a problem 
that's where the problem is. And then there are those that are still just, they don't care and they just believe white is white and black is black. And then that's it. So until we have more people that are truly trying to understand different cultures and different races and what can be done to make things better, then we're not going to get in a better place. And Laura, I do want to ask you though, but I mean, growing up, I mean, just us right here that's talking, I mean, when you were growing up, how was your personal experience of even when you're growing up and, and maybe you didn't have a whole bunch of black friends at the time, but you knew you had some friends and art more that you could talk to it was not like we hung around with each other constantly, but we knew each other. You know what I'm saying? So when you got off to college and everything started to get a little diverse and whatnot, and you start seeing a little bit more, did you feel like you were sheltered here or did you feel like you have a lot to learn about different types of races because you know quote unquote the white privilege do you feel like you now that you're a grown woman now do you feel like you was privileged as a young lady and maybe got away with a little bit more than you think that you should now that you're an adult well yeah I mean absolutely but not not because anybody was like purposely manipulating it but because I just you know benefited from my parents having you know, careers that paid good money, which meant we lived in a nice neighborhood, which meant I went to Lincoln, you know, just like we talked about, I made the drill team with little to no skills when other (laughs) girls did not. I never, like I said, my, my, that my parents or my church, or there was no, there was no one ever saying to me anything negative about black people ever. So I, I never like, I observed that dating was scandalous, but I wasn't really involved. So like, I didn't take it. It wasn't deep internally to me right, um, right, or anything like that. I was very curious about, so the girl I mentioned that was on the drill team bus that we would ask her a bunch of questions that was out of genuine curiosity. It was not rude or, or anything. I was, I read a lot of books. So I was super curious about black church and a lot of, friends went to the black, we called it the black first Baptist. It was not like it said in a negative way. It was just like the black Baptist church and the white Baptist church. And so, but once I got older, you know, my experience at college, I went to OU was also very, very white. I was in a sorority, very white. There were black sororities. And so I observed that as well, but I genuinely did not start to think about it in a privileged way you know, until I moved to Los Angeles and in LA, things are a lot more overt sides of town, even though we're talking about that, there were kind of sides of town in Ardmore too, but in Los Angeles, it felt to me just a lot more divisive, you know, like we had learned from movies and rap songs and whatever about gang culture and just things that I had not given much thought to until I moved to California. It is different than in Oklahoma in that way. So I didn't really start thinking about like, why have I, or, or like what has happened in my life that was easier for me because mm-hmm. I'm a white person. I, that's, that's still a newish thought to me, like in the last right. decade or whatever, when I have started seeing people 
like let's take police brutality for a moment, which is a very hot topic issue. But when I see women posting about how they have to teach their children how to act if they get pulled over. Well, my parents never taught me how to act if I got pulled over. Like they were like, I mean, I have sassed a cop with no worry. Right. And, you know, I've never had to think like that. I've never had to think about anything like that. And so, you know, I've never had to think that if I was, if, if I was denied something, like if I wasn't let into the club or if I wasn't whatever, that it was because I, of the way I looked, because I look, I mean, I'm white. I have blonde hair and blue eyes. Like that's opened a lot of doors for me, but I, I wouldn't have put that together until, I mean, I sort of had to be told that. Right, right. I'll just say when when you say that, it makes me think of something. Um, also, being a light skinned black person was definitely a difference too. Sure um, was. It, it it definitely was different because it was you know you just was treated a little bit better because you know you're yellow boned or whatever. So when I think back on just the general look of things, I can't really say that I grew up like with racism like that, like that in the younger years of coming up to the middle school, because there was a lot of diversity, you know, and all of that. Now I knew like we already talked about that it existed, but it wasn't just so predominant that it was just like scary and crazy like today's world. But as I've gotten older and grown, I did have an experience in my adulthood working in Ardmore where I blatantly know or feel that because of my skin color, I was let go from a position and just for a white person to be brought into the position. And I I felt like I lost a fight in a sense. Like I tried to fight it. I tried to fight the situation, but there was nothing I could really do because that's just the way it was. And our people wasn't running down to, you know, the city hall meetings and trying to make a difference and stuff like that on my behalf. And I didn't know the fault, you know, all the steps to take. Right. Try to fight back in the proper way. And so I kind of just like, I just got fired and it was what it was. And that's just what it was. But, um, or let go rather. I'm so aware today, of course, in my adulthood of the racism that exists openly than I did growing up. Do y'all think that maybe because we were a little bit more sheltered here in this small town? Because I've noticed that when I like social media became popular and all that kind of stuff, I think it made it more blatantly noticeable then because it was everywhere now. We, we are we have access to the whole world now. In our little community, yes, it was there. Yes, there was, you know, maybe a little bit of racism here and there, but you didn't hear about it, wasn't talked about, it wasn't blatant. Very seldom it was there, but it was seldom, you know, just yeah. like, you know, you got uh, let go from a position. The next thing you know, you already know who got it. In our mind frames, that was already a known discussion anyway. You know what I'm saying? Because if you're just like, I'm the only black person in my workplace, you know what I'm saying? And they have questions. They be asking me different types of things. And I'm looking at them like, now y'all still asking these questions. These things pick up a, pick up something and figure it out. Like, I can't tell you. I don't know if y'all know this or not, and I don't want to necessarily say names, even though you may, you know, edit this part or Laura, but there was a lady that's on the Northeast side of town. And I'm sure you probably definitely didn't hear about this, Laura, but there's a lady that lives on the Northeast side of town who back in the day growing up, she would spray paint on her house about police brutality because the police killed her 
son. Okay. And so she was known in the community as a crazy person. So people thought because she was spray painting on her house that, oh, that's just such and such. She's crazy. But God rest her soul because she just passed uh, recently. But I now thinking back, because I was one of those young kids who was naive making sure fun of her because her I house was, was painted, I mean, spray painted with saying things about bru- police brutality, right? Mm-hmm. But today, when I go back and think on that, the only thing now I feel so bad is that she didn't know the proper steps to take. She didn't have help. No one believed in her. There was no cameras. There was no social media. So do I believe that the police probably because it's happening so blatantly open now that she very well could have been telling her truth about her child. And because there was no proof, we all thought she was crazy, but that was kind of her cry for help because she was spray paint on her house. You know what I'm saying? And I think about that in today's time, like, Oh "Mm." yeah. I remember I used to be that kid too, that make fun of it. But until I found out who her children was, but then you kind of felt sorry for them too, because she right. would do that to them. Have you ever heard that story before, Laura, that there was a lady on the Northeast side that was spray paint on her house because of police brutality? Yeah. No, I never heard that. But I mean, I always felt safe in Ardmore. Again, I think part of it was a different time, like, you know, Mayberry style. Like it was just <laughs> everybody felt safe. You know what I mean? Like I didn't know to not feel safe. But I also think right. that in general, Ardmore had a, from what I understand, a, a low crime rate. It went up as we got older because of drugs and oh, some yeah. stuff. But like, I kind of agree with what Danielle said in that we're having this conversation because this is our shared hometown. But if we had grown up in Chicago, I mean, we'd be talking about something different. Like that's an entirely different situation. And I kind of, this is what I kind of want people, listeners of the podcast to be doing is having these talks with their black friends. The majority of my audience is very white. And so I want them to like say to their friends, like, what was this like for you? And honestly, I did not know what you guys were going to say today. Like, I didn't know if you were going to say Ardmore is the most racist, evil town of life. Like, I had no idea. Because it wasn't that bad. I mean, it was rough, but it wasn't that bad. Unless, but on the northeast side of the tracks, Laura, I don't know how often you came over there unless you were going to the Y fields for softball. But most, it was a distinguished difference. If you didn't grow up or come on the northeast side across the tracks, then you were kind of blind, in a sense, to the things that we struggled or went through, in a sense. I mean, over time, I'm sure you were aware. It's just that you didn't have to deal with it because we live over there, you know? So So do you guys think that it's, is it worse or is it just because social media and cameras are bringing things to our attention and, you know, the whole nation has gone through a drug epidemic which is changing small towns and like whatever like I'm trying to figure out if the stuff that I've been learning I'm obviously learning that it's been going on for um, centuries so I'm not saying that but just I don't know there's so many voices the internet is so noisy sometimes I feel like some people are saying the world has gone completely evil and then some people are saying like this has always been here now we're just dealing with it or some people are saying it's gotten worse some people are saying it's gotten better like I don't know what is your what is your pulse on it? I think it's just been brought to more to light because of social media and people being able to 
find out about more things, but the things have been going on like this already. And there were police officers, you know, beating black men or planning evidence that's been going on for years. But now everybody has a cell phone. Like you literally never know who's videoing you. And luckily there's people out there videoing certain things and that's how we're finding out about stuff. But I think that it's been going on. I will say this, that I feel these past few years since the president we have in office now has given an avenue to people to speak more freely. And so true feelings are coming out, whereas there used to be a time where it wasn't okay to say that to someone. Now it's like, you can say whatever you want to to someone. So, and I literally, cause I had a moment where these white guys were at PetSmart and they tr- made me feel like I was crap and called me bees and black this. It, it was like all because of the way I, my dog, I had my dog and he was like freaking 70 pounds. I was struggling with him and I had an English bulldog and he didn't do right. That was just his life, but everybody knew that. So they just took the moment to do that and say that to me. And I was just like appalled. And I just said, what the hell is going on in this world? Like, why are they talking to me like this? I knew then the world has changed. Okay. So we're all mothers here. Yes. Are you talking to your kids about this stuff differently than you were talked to by your parents about it? This is one of the things I wanted to say to you. I'm glad you brought it up because with me having a son who is like almost six, five, he's a black man. There's no doubt about it. And I've had to talk to him literally from being pulled over, how to react to a police officer, what not to do. And this is what happens when you do do that. And this is why they will do it. But you have, my parents never had to have that conversation with me, but When he started driving, I'm like, when you get pulled over, you make sure they see your hands. You make sure that your registration, everything is where you can get to it. So you're not digging for anything. You wait and let them tell you. So like you're going in a line and I felt like I had to. He literally just like a couple weeks ago, just randomly did something that we would have done as children that would have not been a big deal. He went to the high school to go run track, like to be on the track after hours. Now, we would have done that growing up, and it would have been no problem. I literally wanted to choke him because I was like, do you know, like, what could have happened to you if the police would have came? What if he would have been having a bad day? You're trespassing. Like, you cannot do certain things. You just can't. And so I feel like I've had to do that just because of the way things are going because I would feel like I'm not a good mother if I wouldn't have talked to him to tell him, you got to understand, you're just different. And that's just the way it is. Mm. Yeah. I've had that talk. I have, you know, two boys and I've had that talk with especially my oldest son because he is currently dating a white girl. And so although her parents are accepting of it, told him time and time and time again, make sure, you know, you treat her with the utmost respect. I mean, you know, you have to tread light. And, and I hate that because I don't, Of course, I want him to treat her, regardless of her skin color, I want him to treat her well, but I have to embed it in his head because if something happens and there's an argument, there's a disagreement or something, more times than none, son, you're going to be in trouble regardless of the situation. Mm -hmm. And I hate that he has to, he can't just openly love who he loves, but that's just what it is. And he understands it 
not as much as I probably want him to, but he understands it to an extent that, you know, he still chooses to date the white girl with the restrictions of, you know, of her, his love for her. But it is so frustrating for me as a mom, because I know that if something ever happens, that's, it's, yep. it's not going to be good for my son. And I, and I, and I don't even fear like her and him, their relationship. I fear her uh, family members somewhere down the bloodline. That's who I fear for my son because of the time that they grew up and they just don't accept it, you know? Right. So I definitely right. have to have that talk. It's definitely gotten worse to answer your question. It's definitely gotten worse in Ardmore or just, you know, of course worldwide. Right. Because like Monica said, at some point in life, we could do simple things that we didn't even have to question or think about. Whereas you can't just merely do, you know, hardly anything. You can't even move too much without it being a, well, you can't go for a jog. Well, you can't even be at home if you really want to be technical. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's right. <laughs> Danielle, do you want to speak to the parenting part? I haven't really talked to my son about it because he's still fairly young. My son has experienced something with his other side of the family um, where, you know, that cultural difference, you know, you got a great aunt or a great uncle, you know what I'm saying, is looking at, you know, this brown skinned little boy and noticing there is a difference. So I think that when Merrick was going over to the other side, you know, things were being obviously said in front of my baby and it made dad feel uncomfortable where he had to leave the situation because this is his child too. You know what I'm saying? Regardless of, you know, how you feel about the black skin, this is my child and I'm not going to sit here and let you just say something about my child. So, I mean, to this very day, he doesn't talk to that family member from for those actions. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So, I mean, I think it's just the environment that we've grown up in. But right now, I'm just, I'm not currently talking to Merrick about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay, this is my last question. So, you guys are so gracious to give me the benefit of the doubt to even have <laughs> this kind of conversation. But also, we've known each other since we were literally children. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm hoping that you sort of trusted where I was coming from with it. But if you had other white friends, well-meaning white people is what I have called them in the past, well-meaning white person, also want to ask you questions like this. Do you find this awkward or weird or <laughs> inappropriate or do you welcome it or are you neutral on it? Like, where do you... But what do you feel on this kind of conversation? I welcome it. I've been, I actually work with a lot of younger people, even though we're at the corporate office, I have some younger people that I work with. So they're early, early twenties. some, And, you know, it's been beneficial to me to be able to have a conversation with them, whether it's been about hair, it's been about like just growing up because I have one particular guy and he went to a school where it was like five people graduated from it. And it was a private school. So he did not know. I'm probably the blackest friend he's got. Mm-hmm. I, went to a wedding. I went to his wedding. It was about 300 plus people. I was the only black person there. So this is how. So he's my guinea pig all the time because I try to see where he's going to come with something, you know, because he just doesn't get it. And I have had to explain to him, not everybody grew up the way you did. So life right. is not like you got into a job because your aunt worked for the CEO. You literally came with no experience to a position. I was like, do you understand that I never would have been able to do that? 
you got to understand you got a little bit of privilege. So he doesn't get it sometimes. And I have to like bring him into light and then it, he sees it for what it is. Mm-hmm. But it's times like this that I really think that more people should be open to talking to people and expressing their opinions and are basically telling them why, why we're coming from the place we're coming from. Mm-hmm. Cause people are just tired. People are tired of being mistreated. I think that's all it is. It's tired. just you're tired. We're tired. But for me, yeah. I have peace in knowing there's people like you. There's like people like my neighbor. There's people, uh, my co- one of my coworkers is out the blue text. Like it's just, I have peace in knowing that it will hopefully get better than not worse. So. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just chime in real quick and say, I, to answer your question, Laura, I'm definitely open as well, but it is about approach for me because oh. if you definitely come with a, a, you know, a genuine demeanor and you wholeheartedly are showing a concern that you really just want to know, then we can talk all day. Right. Right. More of a, you know, shade or you're just kind of being, you know, silly with it and you know because it's a sensitive subject so naturally you have to make sure your approach is genuine when you're talking about something sensitive and then we can talk all day about it and so um i'll just chime in and say also with everything going so crazy i will say i'm so happy to see so many white people protesting along with us because we've went through so many of this same situation and a lot hadn't been done. And for whatever reason, George's situation was so horrible that white people are even saying, this is, yes, it's about racism, but it's a human life. And so I love the fact that there's more white people that's kind of waking up and, and holding a sign that says Black Lives Matter. Like that's, that means a lot to me. I'm so glad that we have this shared, you know, these shared memories, these, these shared experience, but I'm still learning all the different ways that it was also different, but I just cherish you and your friendship. And I just am very, very grateful that you were coming on here and talking to me publicly about this <laughs> topic. Thank you, Sister. Thank we get you, the Laura. Really, really talking about it. we're gonna be on here for hours and hours. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having us, Laura, and even it wanting to do this. It was great Thank to you see guys you so much. I'm Laura Tremaine, and you've just listened to the Ten Things to Tell You podcast. You can find the show notes and subscribe to episode emails at 10thingstotellyou.com slash podcast. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 10 Things to Tell You. Remember, this is an interactive podcast. I have 10 things to tell you, and you have 10 things to tell. So take this topic to your journal or a friend or post on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. These episodes are meant to bring connection with others and ourselves and spark better conversations. Thanks for listening. Now go share something.